Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. As what is being dubbed a genocide going on in Gaza with now over 25,000 killed, the majority of whom are women and children, and with over 62,000 injured, the anti-war movement in the United States is struggling to impact the U.S. Congress and President Biden to actively call for and also to work for a ceasefire, as well as to stop funding Israel's military operation in Gaza. The United States historically provides over $3 billion in aid each year to Israel, the largest to any other country. Additionally, the Biden administration bypassed Congress through an emergency provision in the Arms Export Control Act to sell Israel $106 million worth of tank ammunition. Biden's unilateral support for Israeli policies in Gaza has earned him the moniker Genocide Joe. Our guest is Kevin Martin, president of Peace Action and Peace Action Education Fund. Also today, there's news on the child tax credit. After millions of families were disappointed when Congress allowed the popular expanded child tax credit to expire after one year, there is new hope for a bipartisan deal to bring back some elements of the expanded child tax credit. But who will be left out of the CTC? The expanded CTC lifted at least 4 million children out of poverty and cut child hunger by 1%. We'll be hearing more about the new bipartisan proposal and who will be included and who won't be included. Our guest is Phoebe Jones-Schellenberg. She is with the CARE Income Now and is co-coordinator of the Global Women's Strike in the U.S., and she's coordinator of the Crossroads Women's Center based in Philadelphia. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Scott Baba. The Israeli military says that Palestinian militants carried out the deadliest single attack on Israel's forces since the Hamas raid that triggered the war. 21 soldiers were killed. It was a significant setback that could add to mounting calls for a ceasefire. Hours later today, the military announced that ground forces had encircled the southern city of Khan Yunis. That marked a major advance, but it was unclear how much closer it would bring Israel to defeating Hamas or freeing Israeli hostages as ceasefire talks appear to be gathering pace. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu mourned the soldiers, but he vowed to press ahead until, quote, absolute victory, even as Israelis are increasingly divided over whether it's possible to both crush Hamas and free scores of remaining captives. 
For the first time since Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin established the International Group to support Ukraine in April of 2022, the United States will host the monthly gathering of about 50 countries out of money, unable to send the ammunition and missiles that Ukraine needs to fend off Russia's invasion. In Brussels today, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg announced a new $1.2 billion joint contract to buy more than 222,000 rounds of 155mm ammunition. The rounds are some of the most heavily used munitions in this conflict, and the contract will be used to backfill allies that have pushed their own reserves to Kyiv. While waiting for Congress to pass a budget and potentially approve more money for Ukraine's fight, the U.S. will be looking to allies to keep bridging the gap. Meanwhile, Russian missiles targeted three Ukrainian cities, including its two biggest, damaging apartment buildings and killing at least six people. The attack came hours after Moscow shunned any deal backed by Kyiv and its western allies aimed at ending the new, nearly two-year-old war. Officials said today's barrage injured at least 20 people in four districts of Kyiv, the capital. In Kharkiv, in northeast Ukraine, authorities said the onslaught killed five people and injured 42 as the missiles damaged about 30 residential buildings. One death from a missile strike was also reported in Pavlorod, an eastern industrial city. Analysts say Russia stockpiled missiles at the end of last year to press a winter bombardment campaign. President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris will join forces at a rally in Virginia as they push for abortion rights. First Lady Jill Biden and Second Gentleman Doug Emhoff will also be there today at what will be the first joint appearance by the four of them since the 2024 campaign began. It's a reflection of the importance that Democrats are placing on abortion as they face a likely rematch against Donald Trump, the former Republican president who helped pave the way for overturning Roe v. Wade by nominating three conservative justices to the U.S. Supreme Court. Donald Trump is aiming for a commanding victory in New Hampshire, securing a sweep of the first two Republican primary races and making a November rematch with President Joe Biden look likelier than ever. The biggest question is whether Trump's last major rival, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, will be able to eat into his margin or pull off an upset victory today. Haley has dedicated time and money to New Hampshire, hoping to appeal to its independent-minded electorate. Trump has concentrated on winning decisively enough to effectively end the competitive phase of the primary. Nikki Haley was the winner in one small New Hampshire town's first-in-the-nation presidential primary. Donna Warder filed this report. Reporters from around the globe came to the tiny resort town of Dixville Notch, New Hampshire to cover the first 2024 presidential primary. And there were more reporters than voters. At 12 a.m. Tuesday, all six registered voters of Dixville Notch cast their ballots for Nikki Haley, giving her a clean sweep over former President Donald Trump and the other candidates. For the record, there are four registered Republicans in the town and two undeclared. Dixville Notch's first in the nation voting dates back to 1960, with the results announced just a few minutes after midnight. I'm Donna Water. Meanwhile, as New Hampshire goes to the polls, new legislation aims to better protect election workers. Alex Gonzalez has more. Democratic State Representative Ellen Reed says HB 1364 makes it illegal to post election workers' personal information online with the intent to threaten them. We want them to know that we have their backs, that they feel safe and supported in those roles as they go about very important official duties. 
A recent nationwide survey found an average of one or more local election officials have left office every day since 2020 due to harassment and threats. I'm Alex Gonzalez for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. I'm Scott Baba for Pacifica Radio. Those were our news headlines, and I would now like to go directly to the update on what is happening in Gaza. The slaughter is continuing. You heard in the intro that there are now over 25,000 killed, the vast majority of them women and children. And of course, the the numbers of injured keeps rising, at least 62,000, but there are many who are still under the rubble. Now, Reuters is reporting today that Israel is um, bombing uh, heavily um, in the south of Gaza. You might recall that when the Israeli uh, incursion began in Gaza, they encouraged people in the north of Gaza to flee to the south. And people fled to the south, but now the south is under heavy uh, bombardment. And that is happening uh, throughout the city. Now, um, about a million residents, according to Reuters, from the north of Gaza have moved into the south to flee the bombardment. But now not only are Palestinians in Gaza worrying about being bombed and losing their lives, but hunger is on the rise. There is concern about uh, famine. And also disease is also on the rise. And the latest from the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez, he said on Sunday um, that he says that their heartbreaking deaths of Palestinian uh, civilians in Gaza and also, quote, Israel's military operations have spread mass destruction and killed civilians on a scale unprecedented during my time as secretary general. That is uh, from Gutierrez himself. He also said it was unacceptable for Israel to resist statehood of Palestinians. And of course, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, President Biden, allegedly has been pushing Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, to agree to a two-state solution. And Netanyahu is saying, no, absolutely not. And in fact, there's some, well, we'll hear a bit more about some of even more radical than, than Netanyahu proposals uh, that are coming forward as to what should happen um, with uh, Palestinians. I just Before we hear from our guests, I just want to remind people that Gaza Strip is 2.3 million people. And by the way, that is an area that's smaller than my home island of Barbados. Barbados is 144 square miles. It has 250,000 to 300,000 residents. So that just gives you, um, you know, a contrast uh, here with uh, what Palestinians are going through. And also on the West Bank, more than 360 Palestinians have been killed there since uh, the Hamas um, attack in Israel that killed um uh, over a thousand, about twelve to fourteen hundred uh, Israelis. So, what I'd like to do now is to hear more about what's happening on the anti-war or the peace front. 
I would like to welcome Kevin Martin. He is president of Peace Action and Peace Action Education Fund based in Washington, D.C. He has been a peace, disarmament, anti-war, human rights and social justice activist for nearly four decades. And Kevin, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Okay, tell us a bit, Kevin, before what you all are aiming to do around Gaza. Tell us a bit about Peace Action. It's considered the country's largest grassroots peace and disarmament organization. Is that right? Yes, we have about 200,000 supporters around the country, and we have affiliates and chapters and associate organizations at the grassroots in, I think, just over 30 states. We lobby Congress. We do public education. Uh, We uh, do protests, uh, sometimes risking arrest when that's appropriate. We also endorse candidates for elections, which is relatively unique. There's not a lot of peace organizations that do. Right. So we know your organization. Obviously, we have seen in the United States and around the world massive protests. I mean, by now, millions of people have been on the street uh, from the United States to the UK, uh, to parts of, of Europe, to Australia. Uh, you know, the outcry has been tremendous. Uh, but nevertheless, there doesn't seem to be a lot of movement on the of in terms of the call for a ceasefire. Tell us what is happening on the U.S. front. What is happening with Congress right now? What has happened recently? Let's start with that. Let's start there. Well, there is, a lot, there is a lot that is going on in Congress. It's unfortunately very frustrating. But before I get into that, and I can talk about several particular initiatives, the global outpouring against this genocide in, in formation has been really amazing. And I think Israel has squandered the understandable sympathy that it would have got or that it did get in the short term from October 7th, the terrible attacks by Hamas. But I think it could actually have a longer term impact in terms of lessen both U.S. and international support for Israel. In terms of Congress, uh, this has long been one of the hardest issues that Peace Action and other groups work on. The uh, influence, as we would say, on Capitol Hill, but also now in elections of the so-called pro-Israel lobby, which frankly, I think they should just be called the pro-apartheid lobby, because that's really what they are in favor of, is this endless apartheid system that oppresses Palestinians, and that is paid for in part by U.S. tax dollars, because they really don't have any solutions. And I hope once we have a ceasefire, once we have an end to this carnage, once there is rebuilding of Gaza, that people will turn towards longer-term solutions. Now, that's not exactly what's going on in Congress now, but there are some that are making noises towards a longer-term solution. But we can talk about some of the near-term initiatives in Congress, if you would like. Right. Uh, I think that would be good uh, to talk about some of it. Talk about, and and in particular, uh, some of what you all have been involved with. But we know uh, Senator uh, Sanders uh, tried to uh, make a move, and uh, there's been at least uh, one other um, senator as well. Just Just tell us about those. So briefly, Senator Sanders and um, some colleagues in the movement worked with his office on bringing forward this this vote that happened last week. 
Um, it was uh, under what's called 502B of the Foreign Assistance Act of 1961. And I've been doing this work for a long time, but I sort of had to scratch my head and remember my civics lesson, what this was about. It was a privileged resolution, which means it can get to the Senate floor much quickly, much more quickly than a lot of others. And it would simply have asked for the State Department within 30 days to produce a report on possible Israeli violations of both U.S. and international law. It would not, as Sanders had said, cut off any aid to Israel, although it could if the State Department didn't respond and deliver that report within 30 days. Now, this sounds like a mild uh, measure, and it sounds like, well, Congress is just doing their job. They represent the American people. They should be providing oversight. You know, our foreign and military policy is too much in the hands of the executive, but the Congress does have oversight power. So this was a relatively modest measure, and it only got 11 votes. It would have gotten 12. One Senator, Brian Schatz of Hawaii, was in favor of it, but he couldn't get back to Washington in time after all of the snowstorms that had been going on uh, last week. Um, nonetheless, people think it was a pretty significant vote, and this was one of the first times that Congress has ever had a vote to hold Congress accountable. And there are several others in, in motion, too. Senator Kane from Virginia, you mentioned Biden by, bypassing the normal congressional notification of arms sales to Israel. Senator Kane has an amendment to stop that. There is a letter that 60 members of the House have signed on to to clarify that no U.S. humanitarian aid will be used to displace Palestinians out of the Gaza Strip. And while they don't use the word, the concern here is ethnic cleansing. And of course, a lot of Palestinians have been displaced or their families have been multiple times since 1948 and the creation of the state of Israel. Perhaps, though, the one that might be most interesting upcoming is an amendment by Senator Van Hollen of Maryland, one of my senators. I live in Maryland just outside Washington. And uh, he's got 18, or there are 18 total, including him, that say in the upcoming, and it may or may not even get a vote, supplemental appropriations bill that the Biden administration put forward with money for Israel, for Ukraine, for border security, for Taiwan, and some other things, including humanitarian aid, that uh, any country, so it's not Israel specific, any country getting uh, aid under that supplemental appropriations bill uh, must live up to U.S. and international law. And so, again, it's kind of just stating what Congress should be doing as, you know, oversight of our tax dollars and of U.S. foreign policy and that uh, U.S. weaponry and military aid is not being used to commit genocide or to commit human rights violations. Uh, so, again, it seems like a rather, rather modest uh, proposal, uh, but we will see. The fact that it has 18 senators uh, is actually pretty significant. And again, you have to look at these things under the very low standard of past lack of accountability, almost entirely a lack of accountability for Israel in terms of committing all kinds of crimes with USAID. Right. So the thing about it, um, Kevin, we, you know, we're seeing this, uh, you know, some people are as well are referring to it as a war, a, a genocide going on in, in Gaza. Now you have all this action uh, happening with the Houthis. It seems as though now the U.S. seems to be at war with the Houthis who have been in solidarity with the Palestinians, have been going after um, 
you know, ships uh, going through uh, that area. And then there is also the border with Lebanon. And uh, what Hezbollah is will or will not do. So there's a lot of concern about this war has already widened and may even uh, get wider, so to speak. So are you know what what are you all thinking? I mean, I know right now that you're focused on and rightly so on uh, Senator uh, Van Hollen's uh, piece on his amendment, uh, but. What first of all, what do people need to do to support that amendment? But secondly, your thoughts on the possibility, well, the reality that this war has already widened and may even um, get wider. Well, the first thing, and this is just to simplify, because I mentioned four different initiatives in Congress and there probably will be others. And that gets hard to keep track of. But if you uh, sign up for emails from Peace Action or from other peace groups, we'll send you that information and then you can target, here's what I should say to my senator or representative. The main thing to say is cease fire now. We've got to end this horrible carnage. So I think keeping things simple and, and keeping that demand for a ceasefire. The other thing you could do is check with your senator, are they supporting the Van Hollen Amendment? And if not, uh, they should be doing that. Now, again, the caveat is that's an amendment to this jumbo supplemental bill, most of which is actually money for military aid for Ukraine. Uh, it's about 60 million, 60 billion, sorry, for Ukraine, about 14 billion uh, for uh, Israel. And then, as I said, there's other things in that bill. That bill may never get voted on as is, or it might get split up. So that's why you can talk to your senators about supporting Van Hollen. But again, everybody can make sure that they're saying ceasefire now to all members of Congress. In terms of the wider war, yes, it is already happening. And Peace Action and other groups have worked for years successfully, uh, although it took a long time, to help bring about the conditions to end the horrible war in Yemen that the United States was supporting with military aid and sometimes direct support to the Saudi Arabian military and the UAE. We worked for a long time to change U.S. policy and Congress got more and more concerned and even passed a war powers resolution to stop U.S. support for Saudi Arabia and Yemen. That was vetoed by Trump and they weren't able to override it. So the thing is, now there's been very promising peace talks between Saudi Arabia and the various parties in Yemen. So we're very concerned that that could collapse. But if you rewind just a little bit in terms of the context of U.S. foreign policy, one of the things that is in common with many of these actors, and you didn't even mention the attacks in Syria and Iraq, it, is, it really is metastasizing is Iran has a role in all of this. Now, don't overestimate that Iran controls the Houthis or Hezbollah or Hamas. However, they do have influence. The United States botched it uh, when, when uh, Trump pulled out of the Iran anti-nuclear deal. And then Biden has failed to get us back into that Iran anti-nuclear deal. Now, that dealt with Iran's nuclear weapons program and making the world and the region uh, more safe. And of course, Iran does not have nuclear weapons, doesn't want nuclear weapons. They have nuclear technology, but they don't have nuclear weapons. But our not getting back into that treaty or that, excuse me, that agreement with Iran, which Biden should have done in his first week or two in office, 
means that we don't really have very good diplomatic relations with Iran right now. If we did, and if we had gotten into that, uh, back into that agreement, it would have put a cap on Iran's nuclear program so that countries could feel safer, that they were not moving to get nuclear weapons. And hopefully we would have you know, better diplomatic relations to talk to Iran about some of our common concerns that this war not metastasize. Now, I hope that there are back channel, private, not publicly announced uh, talks between U.S. diplomats and Iran to really try to tamp down some of these. You could, you could look at five or six different aspects of this metastasizing conflict that Iran has at least some influence with the various parties. And the fact that we have such poor diplomatic relations with Iran right now is very, very unhelpful. Yeah. And, you know, I know you have been uh, doing this, Kevin uh, Martin. Our, our guest is uh, Kevin Martin, and he is with uh, Peace Action and uh, based in Washington, D.C., but they are a national network. So going back, I mean, if you you look at the protests that are happening now in the streets, I'm talking just about the United States right now and the lead up, let's say, to the war um, in Iraq. Um, Are you seeing or you feel that uh, people are as engaged as they were then? Are you seeing the kinds of numbers uh, that we saw in the lead up to that war now? I wouldn't say the same numbers. However, there's been more success in swinging public opinion. So I was doing a little homework before the show, just refreshing my memory. There was a Reuters poll just in the last week or two uh, that showed 68% of the public want a ceasefire and 80% of Democrats, if you want to look at it from a partisan view. Yet only 17% of Congress has come out in favor of ceasefire. And again, a lot of that has to do with the outsized influence of APAC and the so-called pro-Israel lobby, which again, I think should be called the pro-apartheid lobby. So I I think the protests have been very impressive. Um, You didn't have as long of a lead up as we did to the Iraq war. We had a long lead up to the Iraq war to organize against it. So there are some comparisons that are worthwhile. Otherwise it's a little bit of apples and oranges. But, you know, there's been a very strong pro-Palestinian solidarity movement in this country for 30, 40 years. And uh, so a a lot of groups were able to mobilize fairly quickly. So large protests, maybe not as big as the Iraq war, some differences. We didn't have as much of a lead up, but more successful, frankly, in swinging public opinion. Although remembering back to the the start, and we're talking about the second Iraq war now. Um, there right, were a majority. Yeah. There were a majority against going to war, but then after Bush declared war and the so-called you know support the troops uh, took hold, then then public opinion changed. But public opinion is solidly in favor of a ceasefire, and especially young people, not just Democrats, uh, which I said was eighty percent. But again, only seventeen percent of Congress has come out for a ceasefire, and that's not surprising when you look at the money that uh, they've taken from APAC or even APAC and other um, uh, organizations are trying to defeat progressive, often people of color, African-American, Latino, uh, Rashida Tlaib is the only Palestinian American in Congress. Uh, They're trying to defeat them in primaries because they dare speak out in favor of Palestinian rights. So APAC doesn't always win. They don't always get their way. They were not able to stop the Iran anti-nuclear agreement that Obama got us into wisely and that Trump foolishly abrogated. 
but they're no joke either. They spend as much money or more than a lot of the big lobbies in Washington. And then you put uh, with that the campaign money that they uh, throw out there. If you go to their website, it's quite a long list of candidates that they support. So it's no joke. They have influence. Right. And we, we just looking at the clock, we just have a, a couple of minutes, although we're regularly uh, covering uh, this on our weekly broadcast. But as you say, public opinion has shifted. And one difference here, I suppose it is the context we see at the forefront of, if not the majority of protests, you see Jewish people, young uh, young people in particular, but of all ages, rabbis, um, people who are non-secular, you see at the, at the forefront. And I think that that is also a shift that's happening. You're seeing a younger generation in the Jewish community, I'm hearing, that are really having a, a different view from perhaps the older generation. In uh, feeling that if Israel is doing something wrong and committing a genocide, not in their name, not in the name of any of us. But just a quick final thought then on the impact of this case that South Africa uh, has brought against uh, Israel for their treatment of, of Palestinians. Um, what impact do you think that that could have and and is it having an impact in the anti-war movement the peace movement itself well the peace movement is all in favor of it will it have any impact on u.s government policy on the congress on israel government policy um that's hard to say that that will happen in the near term and international public opinion is already against israel in terms of this attack and again as i said earlier israel has really squandered i think both the short term but also potentially long-term sympathy that it rightfully had after the horrible October 7th attacks. And I think the fact that it is South Africa has to really sting. But of course, um, South African uh, activists for a long time, including Bishop Tutu, who's now uh, deceased, called Israeli apartheid worse than what they experienced in South Africa. So every once in a while, if someone tries to argue with me about using the the term apartheid, I say, hey, look, don't argue with me. Argue with Bishop Tutu or other South African activists. So I think the fact that South Africa has brought the case carries a lot of weight, and I'm really glad they did it. Now, will it make a difference in the short term to save lives? Probably not. But I think it does set a standard, especially moving forward, Uh, that countries have to understand they are not just going to be able to get away with genocide, even if they have uh, the United States, the the preeminent economic, military, and political power in the world behind them 100%. Right, right. Okay. Um, You know, I am forever hopeful, and I agree that the, the case, the South Africa case, is really very, very critical and important right now. A lot of support across a number of countries across the global south, so we have to see how all of this plays out. So everybody out there who's been on the street and writing letters, et cetera, um, we, you know, I'm sure it's, there is an impact, even though um, the impact is often hidden from us. But Kevin, we have to wrap it up. But for people who want to sign on to any documents, um, peace um, action has put out, what should they do? 
What can they do? The best thing is go to peaceaction.org and sign up for our action alerts, usually one or two a week. We send you with very targeted information. Here's what's going on in Congress. Here's how you can make a difference. Uh, That's probably the best way to do it. Or if not peace action, then your local peace organization. Right. Well, on that note, uh, Kevin Martin, thank you so very much for for your work. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Good Good to be with you. And I also want to give a shout out to David Gibson, who also helped uh, to put us in touch with Kevin. We're going to take a short station break. And when we return, what is going on with the child tax credit? It's back on the agenda. It's back in the news. Uh, Phoebe Jones Schellenberg, who's been very active in trying to bring back the expanded child tax credit, is waiting in the wings to join us. Um, So don't go away. We'll be right back. Until the philosophy which old one race superior and another inferior is finally and permanently discredited and abandoned everywhere is war. All righty. And that is the late, great Bob Marley uh, War. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you've missed any part of this hour from 10 this morning for 90 days after that, just go to kpfk.org, scroll down to archives, click on Sojourner Truth. You'll be able to hear the show in its entirety. And uh, you can check us out on our Facebook also. The show will be posted there. And we are heard nationwide and worldwide 24-7 on SoundCloud. SoundCloud, a free download. And today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the great state of Maryland. And internationally, we're continuing to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in uh, Palestinian uh, territories. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And uh, we are now going to uh, turn our attention to uh, what's going on with the child tax credit. It was immensely uh, popular. And uh, then it got um, cut after one year, the expanded child tax credit that is, um, it pretty much covered, it it lifted um, at least 4 million children out of poverty. It cut child hunger by a quarter. And now there is a new bipartisan proposal uh, that was Democrats agreed to under pressure from Republicans that will roll back some of the earlier gains of the expanded child tax credit. The new proposal would lift 400 children out of poverty, leaving behind millions of the most impoverished. So you contrast 4 million children in the earlier version to now 400,000. Now, Congresswoman DeLauro, who has championed the child tax credit for over two decades, said that the bipartisan CTC proposal will, quote, keep millions of children in preventable poverty. Now, most NGO advocates on Capitol Hill, including the Children's Defense Fund, Economic Security Project, and others, they are supporting the bipartisan compromise, uh, though they admit it doesn't go far enough, but they are worried that um, 
they are afraid of no action in this Congress on the child tax credit. And they're hoping that if this bipartisan proposal goes through, it will set the stage for an improved version in 2025. We're going to kick off this segment now by hearing remarks made by Congresswoman Gwen Moore, a champion in Congress against poverty, as she spoke during the House Ways and Means Committee hearing this past Friday on the proposed compromise. Let's go to Congresswoman Moore now. So if you have one child uh, at $10 an hour, how many hours would you have to work? Uh, Approximately 50 hours. 50 hours. 50 hours per week, yes. Okay. Thank you. So uh, just just to uh, make, make it clear, Uh, The phase out for this program for the single parent is $200,000 of income, right? Uh, Yes, that's correct. Okay. So can you just tell me the range of of taxpayers, I mean earnings, not taxpayers, they're they're all working under these examples. But a mom with two kids, what is the, uh, what's the, the, the minimum? What, what is the range of taxpayers and earnings, uh, you know, bottom to top that they, at 15%, would they receive the maximum credit? Ms. Moore, as you, as you noted, uh, any taxpayer with, uh, as long as you have earned income, uh, earned income up to two hundred thousand, you can achieve the max. Uh, you can achieve the maximum. The, the point. But you, you wouldn't making, have to be working seventy hours a week. Not not if not if you were earning uh, not if you were earning substantially above, uh, you know, you know fifty thousand uh, dollars. Right, right. I mean, because you could you could be a consultant or something and work. Thank you so very much, Mr. Chairman. I move to strike the last word. I just want to thank uh, the chairman and this committee for this markup, but I I do have to say that I think that marking this bill up, these bills up today is a missed opportunity on both the individual and the corporate side. You've heard many of my colleagues talk uh, today about the $600 billion plus dollars that we are going to lock in for corporations, but yet leave millions of children languishing in poverty. You know, I've heard many people say that, uh, that the improvements in the child tax credit is something that we ought to just be happy with. Um, because it will, in fact, provide at least 400,000 kids, uh, 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 will move them uh, out of poverty. But it's unacceptable to me that we are leaving millions more uh, in poverty. I'm so proud that what we did with the child tax credit, the refundability portion, lifted 40% of children in this country out of poverty. You know, the Republicans' notion that somehow there's a moral hazard in providing a refundable tax credit is unsubstantiated by people who do research. This is not a disincentive to work. And if you heard the dialogue that I had with the Joint uh, Committee on Taxation, uh, that no matter how hard a woman works, say she works, she's got two kids, no matter how hard she works, she'd have to work 70 hours a week under current law and over 40 hours a week in order to access the maximum credit. 
And so this is this is you know this is not supposed to be a work program. It's supposed to recognize the expensive cost of raising kids and wanting them to have the proper development, health and education and employment. That is what is a fact. It's a fact that children are better off with the with with some support. Foster parents. I mean, if you if your child ends up in a foster home because you can't take care of them for whatever reason, we will provide money to those foster parents, the CTC to them. Thank God. But you have to lose your kids in order for your children to get the benefit. That's just unconscionable. And since 85 percent of child removals are due to poverty, not because of any other sort of abuse, poverty. We are, you know, poverty is the main reason that they are they are taken from their their mothers. Uh, we are incentivizing child removals so that the kids can eat. You know, and the other problem with this bill is that it locks in a, this limited t a child tax credit for three years, making this compromise agreement go on uh, for longer than it should. We should change it today immediately. Wow. Powerful words uh, from Congresswoman Gwen Moore. She's a member of the House Ways and Means Committee. Uh, they did a markup on this bill. Uh, on this bill, it passed that committee, by the way, by a vote of forty to three. Congresswoman Moore was one of the uh, nay votes on this, and of course, she's out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and a champion in Congress uh, for women uh, standing against poverty of children, but against poverty generally. Before we welcome our guests now, we heard from the House side. Let us hear now from Senator Bennett on the Senate side. He has been in the Senate champion of the child tax credit, and here he has been forced, it seems, by his uh, Republican uh, colleagues to come up with this compromise. Let's hear what he had to say. I want to ask you before I let you go, the child tax credit, you have been one of its biggest supporters, biggest boosters, biggest backers, the expanded version that was in uh, the American Rescue Plan. There is an agreement on a 70 plus billion dollar tax deal. It won't go as far as the ARP, but it would expand the tax credit. It has been criticized by Rosa DeLauro, an, a leader in the House on this issue, she said millions of children will be left in preventable poverty because of a policy choice, all while giant corporations who do not pay any taxes get a massive tax break. I know you agree on the policy with Rosa DeLauro. Floro. But that yeah. message, what's your message to her about this deal going forward? Well, first of all, Rose's, I mean, her criticism's well taken. Our goal in this country, should, we're in the richest country in the world, should be to end childhood poverty. We proved in 2021 that we could cut childhood poverty in half. We made the most significant change in domestic tax policy uh, in decades, and it worked. It did what we said it was going to do. Now we have a more modest approach. It's all we could get to in a, in a bipartisan agreement, but it's going to make a difference for 16 million kids. It'll lift another almost half a million kids out of poverty. 200,000 kids in Colorado are going to benefit. Right. And a lot of parents in this country that are making twelve dollars or $13,000 or $14,000 a year that have two kids are going to see their credit go from less than $2,000 to over to 3600 bucks. It's going to make a lot of difference with groceries and with gas and with rent. So I'm, my heart is with Rosa, but I think we're going to make some progress here. We'll come back in 2025 and do the rest. Senator Michael Bennett, always appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. 
All righty. So there's Senator Bennett hoping against hope uh, that things could improve a better child tax credit um, uh, compromise, so to speak, bipartisan in 2025. I would now like to welcome our guest, uh, Phoebe Joan Schellenberg. She is coordinator, a co-coordinator of the Global Women's Strike in the U.S. She's based in Philadelphia, where she's one of the founders of the Crossroads Women's Center, a multiracial collective self-help Advocacy Center, which works to end women's poverty. She has been involved in efforts to get unwaged work recognized, valued, and compensated since she joined the Wages for Housework campaign as a college student way back in the 1990s. Sorry to age you there, Phoebe. Uh, she's been part of numerous delegations to Capitol Hill uh, starting in the 1980s against dismantling welfare as a right um, to now advocating for a permanent, fully refundable child tax credit and for an earned income child tax um, earned income tax credit that recognizes the work of caregiving. She's been involved in the 1995 winning, helping to win the 1995 UN resolution to measure and value underage work. She's the co-editor of the Milk of Human Kindness, and she's actually Dr. Phoebe Jo Schellenberg, although she doesn't like the doctor <laughs> to be referred to. Phoebe, welcome. Thank you, Margaret. And in fact, it's even worse. I was a college student in the 1970s, not the 90s. But thank you for having oh, me on. Oh, 1970s. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I misread that there. Uh-huh. Yep. Um, Phoebe, we, we have literally just about nine minutes or so. And I know mm-hmm. that you have plenty to say about the child tax credit. For people who are listening and don't quite understand the difference we're making now between the expanded child tax credit and this compromise, what uh, are some of the key things in the original expanded child tax credit that unfortunately only lasted a year that's not now in this compromise, Phoebe? Right. Yeah. I mean, the the critical things were, first of all, it was fully refundable, meaning that you did not have to have an income in order to receive it. That alone opened up the tax credit to grandmothers, to full-time mothers, to those taking care of kids with disabilities. And it made, you know, and it was easy to file for it. It wasn't a bureaucratic thing. You didn't have to prove anything. You didn't have to prove some income and go through hoops. And um, that was, I think, one of the biggest features. The other big feature was that it was paid monthly. And the payment of monthly actually does mean that it goes to rent and to food and to, you know, you know, to various things that you need to paying off your bills. If you pay it at the end of the year, you've already gone into debt at that point and your money is going, in fact, to pay down the debt. So it doesn't go to the same things. Um, the Before, during that one year, it went to those who had ITIN numbers. So immigrant families uh, could access it. And, um, and it was more money. I mean, it was significant. It was $300 a month per child for young children and $250 a month per child for over for older children. And, you know, the the women in our network were saying, you know, they could breathe. You know, it took the pressure off. They could do things with the family. I mean, one woman was talking about she she was raising her grandkids. She's one of those grandmothers who stepped in because uh, her her daughter was dealing with with drug issues. She stepped in. She's taking care of the grandkids. She got the tax credit. 
They had Taco Tuesdays. She said the whole community would come out for barbecues because they had something to contribute and people didn't want to come out when they didn't. I mean, it was just really significant what it was like, you know, to to get it. And those features are not in this one. And, you know, it's just... I think it's really a slap in the face. It's so galling, you know, that those who are working the hardest in society don't get it, aren't getting it. And our kids are paying the price, you know, so it's it's not the, you know, it's the, the kids of those grandmothers, the kids of those mothers, the kids who have disabilities, veterans, those who are ca- taking care of veterans, they're not getting the tax credit for the, for their work. And uh, it's it's just backwards, and the, you know the, the, they want to be imposing work requirements on those who are doing the most. They want people, grandmothers, to be working seventy hours a week. Who are they kidding? I mean, it's just it's so galling and it, it's so outrageous. And we're not stopping fighting. You know, we're keeping going. We know why people. We know people were desperate to get anything, but we're not. We're not, we are not saying no. We are keeping fighting till the bitter end to get these things because that is what's going to benefit the kids. This is, this is not, you know, you, you don't give up on it. You keep fighting. You never know what you can win. And especially if people stand up and are, you know, we're going to be issuing a, an action alert. Um, they can, they can get it. Well, you could email Philly, P-H-I-L-L-Y, at allwomencount.net to get it. You know, email us. We'll send you a copy. You can distribute it. You can sign it. But we're telling all of our Congress people and the White House, this is does not go far enough. This is not good enough. This isn't doing what we need it to do. And we're going to, you know, we won't have it. Right. And Phoebe, um, echoing the words of Congresswoman DeLauro, Congresswoman DeLauro has made it clear um, to national coalitions that are working on this, certainly to our network, that she's going to fight to the bitter end. She's not saying how she will vote at the end of the day. I mean, another markup is going to be happening on January the 29th. And a lot of people are really waiting to see, will this uh, compromise, it's bipartisan, be strengthened? or will the Republicans actually try to weaken it even uh, further right now? But uh, Phoebe, just in the time that we have left, um, uh, Congresswoman Gwen Moore, you heard her mention something about um, foster parents, Mm, right? And I I wondered if you could just touch on that and also um, the, the issue of domestic violence in relation to this. Yes, thank you. You know, on the child, on the foster care thing, it's she mentioned what she said, and it was an excellent uh, point in that, you know, that the that the that that money, that credit that could go to the mother to keep the child in the family is now going to the foster parent to, uh, you know, to 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 separate the families. And also, if you take that money from the mother um, and give it to the foster mother, you are preventing that mother from getting the child back. I mean, that, as she said, most of the reason kids are taking, some 90-some percent of the reason kids are taking is because poverty is confused with neglect. 
So, you know, if you can't pay the rent, you're a bad mother. If your heat gets cut off, you're a bad mother. And they're spending, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to take the child when they could just be helping with the rent. And the child tax credit is part of that. They're also taking kids' social security numbers. That's another question. On the domestic violence issue, you know, one of the things we want to be working towards in the in the future, our our view of strengthening it is to do what is done in other countries in that it's by fault goes to the mother or primary caregiver. That is the only way you are going to assure that it actually gets to the kids because in situations of domestic violence and one in four women face that, if you have to go through the abuser to get the tax credit, you're not going to get it and the kids are not going to get it. So, you know, this, this needs to be addressed, but none of that kind of, um, you know, what the domestic violence victims are facing is addressed in this. So you could very much be more at the disposal of the, of the abuser. So these are these are really critical yeah. things that need to be addressed, as well as the ITIN numbers. Yeah, right. And uh, and Phoebe also just looking at the numbers in and of itself. I mean, one thing that's being touted as a good thing in this bipartisan uh, proposal, and a lot of people think it's given the state of the country right now, it's very important to have a piece of legislation that is bipartisan, the, uh, uh, you know, the extended um, child tax credit that we're all love and supported was really a democratic, um, you know, Republicans weren't on board with it and neither was the one Democrat mansion who helped to kill it after one year. But this particular one um, is, does increase a bit not by much, but it does take inflation into uh, consideration. So we're not really talking about a whole heck of more money, you know, are we, uh, Phoebe? And um, also for, you know, what what is it that you think people should be demanding and pushing for right now? Because we have seen the data that says the child tax credit is extremely popular among Republicans, among yes. independents, and definitely yes. among Democrats. So yes. the elected officials on the Hill, just like with the war situation, where 68% of people right. want to cease fire in Gaza, and they're not listening. That's so right. here you have the majority of the people in the United States saying, we love the child tax credit, the expanded one, we want to keep it, but here they are all wheedling it down. Uh, just a, a, a Quick final, some final thoughts from you, Phoebe. Yeah, and getting it to those who need it the least, whereas those who need it the most are the ones who are not getting it, as well as the corporate. I mean, one other thing I think that's really important that, you know, the child tax credit went to everyone, same amount, no matter what you earn or didn't earn. And that once something is a, you know, is a right, like Social Security and not a charity, you know, it's much, it's much more popular and it's much more secure because once something becomes some kind of charity, then, you know, then they 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 can cut it. And so we feel like what you know, that that tax credit belongs to everybody. And it and even if you have a high income, you know, as I said, if you're a victim of domestic violence, you need you need the tax credit. Yeah. You, know, you might your husband might make some money and you don't. 
and you need it. So, you know, that it, it needs to, those are the main changes. I think it being paid monthly, made available to everybody without a bureaucracy are the two critical things. Raising it, right. raising the amount is also important. I've, uh, yeah. And Phoebe, I'm afraid we are out of time here, yeah. but just to underscore that families earning as much as $200,000 a year can get the full credit um, which, you know, doesn't look like a lot, but it, it makes a difference. But for a single mother right. of one child, as Gwen Moore pointed out, she would have to work outside the home on top of her caregiving 70 hours a week to get the <laughs> same child tax credit that a family earning $200,000 would get. Now, there's something wrong with that picture. But to be continued, thank you, Phoebe, for all of your efforts. Thank you thank so you. much. Thank you, Margaret. Yeah. Take care. We're out of time. I'd like to thank all of today's guests. Today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank Jose Benavides, who does a lot. He does technical stuff, helps with the production. Uh, thank you, uh, Jose. If you'd like a copy of today's show, contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at one 800 735 go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air with our weekly broadcast next Tuesday. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. You all please stay well and safe.